собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. This week's podcast is a recording of a roundtable interview I did at the University of Pittsburgh as part of the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Spring Speaker Series, Spying, Archiving, Reporting, Information in Eastern Europe. This event titled Peering Under the Rug, Sources of Information About Russia, was recorded on March 28, 2019, and features Mark Galiati, Kevin Rothrock, and Maxim Trudelubov. Mark Galiati is a Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. He's the author of many books, most recently The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia, published by Yale University Press, and We Need to Talk About Putin, published by Penguin. He blogs about Russia at In Moscow Shadows. Kevin Rothrock is the managing editor of Medusa English. And Maxim Trudelubov is a senior advisor at the Kennan Institute and editor-at-large of Vidamosti, an independent Russian daily. He writes the Russia File blog for the Kennan Institute and oversees special publications. He's the author of The Tragedy of Property, Private Life, Ownership, and the Russian State, published by Polity. I've also provided a partial transcript of this interview. I'll put a link in the show notes and on the podcast website. Here's Mark, Kevin, and Max. Given the title of, of today's event, uh, Peering Under the Rug, Sources of Information About Russia, I thought we'd you know, start our conversation today by just having each of you talk about where do you go for information about Russia? The media contacts you have, contacts in the government, contacts in various institutions, and, and we'll have you start, Mark. Okay. Um, what is the secret answer? Where do you find all the truth? Well, of course, the, I mean, the honest answer is there is no secret answer. There is no single source. And that's the point. I mean, I think we, we are in a position at the moment in which for all the talk understandable of Russia as an authoritarianism, of censorship and so forth, there is a bewildering and massive array of materials at our disposal. The problem is not there's no material. The problem is I do not have time to read all the material. So the, really the, th the thing to do in, in my experience is, is to triangulate. Yes, I mean, I, ha I have some places, uh, media outlets in particular, that I look at on a, on a daily basis. Um, I mean, I suppose, Vidomosti. Um, but other, other, other sort of key newspapers, because then, I mean, TV is ridiculously state-controlled, full of the most toxic and bilious propaganda around. I mean, you know, if you think of Orwell's five minutes of hate, if only it was just five minutes. Um, 
But actually, I mean, in terms of the internet, in terms of the print media, that there is still vast amount of, of really interesting stuff. But I think one of the sort of, I mean, rather than just simply sort of say, oh, well, there's this person and there's this outlet and so forth. For me, one of the key things to do is to make sure that I periodically move outside the obvious um, self-referential bubbles. Now, I mean, for, for me, that also means looking at, for example, what the, the ultra-nationalists and the statists are saying. What's being said on Tsagrad TV, for example, which is the uh, um, brainchild of Konstantin Malofeyev, this sort of ultra-orthodox, ultra-nationalist, not quite an oligarch, minigarch, um, you know, who's, who's been responsible. I mean, he was a key figure in Crimea. He was a, he's still a key figure in, in the Balkans and so forth. Very, very different kind of perspective. Um, that you'll get from that. So I think that the thing is, it's, it's basically spend as much time as I've got looking at different sources. And then I have a basis, and it's the last point I'll make, is so when I talk to people in Moscow, and let's be perfectly honest, my experience is that, particularly if you're going to be talking about anything that, in the most broad sense, fits into the realms of security, and these day, this day and age, almost anything can be a security issue. Um, people are much, much more constrained about what they will say by email or by phone because they will assume they're being tapped and so forth, which is ridiculous in a way. I mean, yes, the state has the technical capacity to do so. What it doesn't have is just simply the people to be listening. But, you know, I think old habits of falling back on paranoias have, have reasserted themselves depressingly quickly. Um, so, you, you know, in my experience, you get much more talking to people you've known for a long time face-to-face. But even then, what you've got to realize is this is an information-scarce society. Everyone knows that they don't know what's happening in the black box around the leadership. And to that end, information becomes a commodity. And also, basically, everyone wants to pretend that they know what's going on. Um, You know, you talk to eight different people, you'll get ten different theories, all of them expressed with absolute confidence that absolutely, I, I, I know some guy at the presidential administration. I mean, it would seem to me the people of the presidential administration, which is the most important institution in Russia, they must all be incredibly gregarious. <laughs> because it seems that everyone in Moscow has got an array of friends in them or whatever. But the point is, no one really knows. So the final point is, you're always going to be just balancing a whole series of possibilities. You'll get a whole bunch of data points, and it's up to you and your gut, which is why it's not a political science. Um, your gut to try and work out how you think you'd connect those data points and make a picture. Um, Well, um, as as a Russian, uh, I tend to read a lot in Russian, and uh, this is so complicated, I don't even know how to to describe this, but uh, we do have a huge and very vibrant seen uh, in in Russia, uh, writing on and discussing, and not just writing, but, uh, I don't know, YouTube, uh, uh, podcasts, um, social media. Um, There is uh, something called Telegram, which is an app. It's a messaging app, which has uh, an inbuilt uh, channels in there, so anyone can uh, can write little bits and things there and and publish it and then people subscribe to that and some of those are very widely read and many of those are terrible because they pretend exactly the uh, what just mark just said 
is is very true about uh, many of those because these uh, guys, many of them anonymous, pretend to be those friends of of those uh, presidential administration uh, people, and they and they on a daily basis they translate some uh stuff that is complete um, uh, complete and utter nonsense but there is some stuff there too so um you 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 kind of learn on the job to to sift through this and filter through and um it's just very raw that i would say the russian uh, the actual russian stuff uh, that uh, is ar- is out there is in abundance, they're huge, uh, uh, huge, uh, long pieces, short pieces. Every news gets uh, immediate uh, the, the discussion uh, about it, but it's very raw. Uh, unlike what uh, people write in English, and then, and then I, I mean, when I read in English, I actually I kind of I I, I take. Almost at like t- it's like you know to take a rest, like uh, like take a you know a quiet moment because you see uh, there's there's logic there. I mean, r- regardless of whether the logic is correct, it is there just because people write in a certain way. Uh, because when people write in Russian, uh, uh, it's um, it's a very different culture. Uh, it's um, uh, sort of a stream of consciousness kind of. Uh, writing, which is very, very common. Uh, so the Russian scene—that's what I would uh, say—is is, is really huge. And uh, I've been th- uh, w- when you look at it, and it's growing, and uh, the competition is terrible, w- which is kind of very weird and strange to be uh, in Russia here and get all the, all these news every day. That the Kremlin is uh, trying to uh, to control this and that, and uh, all these state-run TV channels uh, stream all these uh, um, weirdest, the most crazy things on a daily basis, and still you get an enormous competition, and it's very hard to get your stuff to the readership, just like in the West, in a different way. Uh, so uh, this is the strange thing that we have. So when you imagine, just um, just I will, I will conclude on that. That um, on uh, you know make a kind of a thought experiment and uh, try and get rid of the state propped <coughs> uh, media, which are huge uh, and and very um, rich, and they um, they both have subsidies from the state and. Uh, the they control the monopolize the uh, advertising market, but if you kind of subtract that from the scene, you basically get this huge broth, uh, a primordial kind of soup of stuff that needs to be structured and has no structure whatsoever. So uh, you, you kind of I, I kind of anticipate a moment when this state-run media. Are gone, which is inevitable. They will be at some point because it's a, it's a completely ridiculous and, uh, and 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 also unnecessary uh, uh, kind of luxury for the regime. Uh, the the thing that remains will have to be structured, and it's a kind of work that um, uh, we uh, 
back uh, in in Russia will kind of will have to will have to do because right now it's it's really such a mess such a mess well i sympathize with with reading russian journalism which is generally what i do for my job and a lot of it is the stream of consciousness sort of stuff that you're you're talking about at the same time when i actually when i read the american press about russia that's when i start to sort of hyperventilate and i lose i get exhausted so quickly if i think maybe they take it too much in the other direction where it is so structured and so grand and geopolitical that as I'm reading, I'm like, does it, does it have to be about Putin again? I mean, like, does it have to be about balance of power and where they're, I mean, all these grand ideas? It, it, it's too big, and I appreciate the sort of granular uh, focus you can get in the domestic media, and that's natural. I mean, I'm sure you get really granular stuff from a local paper here. And uh, by the way, thank my thanks to the university and to Sean for inviting us. Um, that's very, it's very nice of you to have us. Um, but uh, yeah, so the the. I, I work from Connecticut, by the way. I'm, a, I'm here. I'm based here, so I'm. All of my sourcing is completely remote. I have some connections in the, you know, the world of Russian journalism, and I, you know, I'll talk to them about kind of like, I don't know, bullshitting in the industry, but I wouldn't describe it as high-level intelligence. Um, and so there's plenty of that to be had, and it is. I do get it through Telegram generally. That's where people are most comfortable, bad, bad mouthing each other. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, the, the the Russian media I, I, I agree with with uh, with Max that it's really it's it's there's there's a lot there and I, I kind of think of it in terms of there's these sort of spheres and within the country you have so the, you, for you know for business news you can go to like the top three which are like Commerzant, Vedomosti, and maybe RBC and if you're interested in uh, I mean if it's just headline breaking news you're actually going to end up going to a news agency a lot of the time, like Rio Novosti, TASS, or, or um, Interfax. I mean, like these, a lot of the stories you see written up in the independent media are just patch-written stories based on a, news, on a breaking news story that just appeared on Rio Novosti an hour ago or something like that. So th there, it's not as though like anything affiliated with the state is toxic and you have to stay away from it. I mean, some of it's just straightforward sort of factual, here's a quote, here's what the ministry said, that sort of thing. Um, but so you have you have those are kind of the like titans of like general information, and then you've got the independent stuff. You may have heard of, if you follow Russia at all. You've got Dojd, you've got uh, Media Zona, which is maybe not as well known, but it's fantastic. They report on the criminal justice system, and it was founded actually with sort of the I think it was the it was the Pussy Riot uh, two that was Telekonakova and and Elyokhina who who kind of combined the money that they were magically able to collect after getting out of prison. And they put together this amazing outlet. And it has some donations now, I think. I don't know exactly how it's run uh, in, in terms of finances, but it's an indispensable news outlet. They have these live live blogs, they call them, for, that they run from courtrooms. And re there's really no better way to learn about kind of like absurdities of the Russian justice system than to see this sort of live blog of like hour five of the verdict being read out. Um, and uh, Media Zone is a great source for that. The, there are, there are, uh, there's a sort of exploding cottage industry of online investigative projects, and the, the two that come to mind are both run by guys named Roman, or they're both started by guys named Roman. There's, there's The Insider, and then there's Project, which is a little newer, but The Insider has worked with Bellingcat a lot, and they were instrumental in breaking a lot of the news stories surrounding the Salisbury uh, agents, the GRU agents, and... Uh, these guys are just working online, and they have staffs. They have small staffs, but you know they're just they're just there, and they're in country, and they're doing really great work. 
And then outside of the country, you have also a lot of fantastic news outlets. Medusa is obviously one of them. This is where I work. Um, but there's also the BBC. There's RFERL is doing fantastic work. Some of it's not as fantastic. They just had to pull a story that was uh, about Evgeny Prigozhin's like him doing something illegal in in like the catering industry or something. But it was based entirely. It was just an interview with an anonymous source who the only thing they could verify was the fact that he was a businessman. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily, it's not stellar journalism, but that is sort of an isolated case. And that was the Raja Svoboda people. That wasn't the, the RFRL core team, I guess. So anyway, they've, they've got a lot of talented people. They're doing a lot of good things. They might get their funding cut, so maybe they won't be as, uh, as useful resource next year, but we'll see about that. There's also, the, 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 I don't know if I mentioned, the BBC's Russian service is fantastic, and they have a pretty big team. And so this is something you get... We'll, we'll, I think we'll, we'll talk more about our, uh, RT and, and the state media later. We've talked about TV some, but one of the things it does is it like forces a lot of talent to these to these either kind of peripheral news outlets or the ones that are you know literally on the periphery outside of the, the country's borders. And the, 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 this is not necessarily a problem. I mean, who cares if somebody's working at the BBC or Medusa versus I don't know Piedri Canal or something like that? It, other than there's less exposure, I think. You know, if you're if you're truly at like a titan of the media and one that gets the exposure, that's better for the body politic. And so that is a sort of negative consequence of of the talent getting forced to smaller outlets and beyond the borders and so on. Um, but you know, I'm reading these outlets, and I'm also looking at social media to some extent. But I find social media very difficult to parse because again, you have in Telegram, which for a while seemed like it was going to revolutionize. Russian newsmaking, because suddenly now we have all these direct lines to the authorities, and then there's there were just so many, and it was like, wait a minute, this can't be, this is this is too much, and so it turns out, according at least to you know several investigative reports, the most prominent I'm aware of being one by Prekt, that Roman uh, Badanin outlet, they put out something that I think piggybacked on some other reports too, but the the essence was that the Sidlivaki, the security agencies, and a lot of influential business interests have basically either paid these channels to write what they want or to not write what they don't want or they've just they're planning stories and so on so it's really kind of messy but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're completely useless because if anything it's now a way to see which way the kind of mudslinging is blowing or whatever but um, I do tend to stick mostly to the just to the news media I used to work a lot with social media but I I find it to be too unruly to be honest yeah, yeah. I just wanted to add very quickly, uh, kind of a small list of things uh, because I have named named na names. So a uh, small list of uh, outlets that I uh, I think are trusted could be trusted. So I would name the Bell is the first, it's the best structured uh, you know news of the day. It's called the Bell in English, but it's a Russian uh, th thing, very similar to. Um, uh, to I don't know Ax uh, Axios for example it's it's a m based on a mailing list. Vedomosti, um, uh, Medusa, uh, Bloomberg, Bloomberg Russia is very important. Uh, the, the the Moscow bureau for Bloomberg is stuffed with the best journalists uh, you have in Russia. Somehow they managed to do that. I don't know how, but uh, they sometimes they produce outstanding stuff in terms of like purely in you know reporting wise, they get the news and uh, uh, they get it out there. So so um, Reuters Russia is good is, is very good too, and they do uh, very good investigations. 
and and uh, some of the outlets were already mentioned uh uh but these are commerçant is still important but i wouldn't name it in you know like at, at the very top simply because of uh, uh i uh, sometimes i'm not sure why they miss things why certain things are simply not reported uh, or reported in a certain way. So they still produce very good journalism. The standards are good, but they, they seem to be, they seem to have some uh, kind of top-down editorial influence that is is not uh, good for uh, for news. So, but in general, I, I think that Russia has a remarkably, uh, well, good, small but good um, selection of news outlets that work well. I, I debated whether to ask about this, but it, it's such a big news here in the United States, of course, over the last week. And a lot of, you know, Americans understanding of Russia, of course, comes from American media. And of course, the one story that has dominated American media about Russia in the last two years has, of course, been Russiagate. And we finally, Mueller finally issued his report. And if you take what the Justice Department says, they found no collusion between Trump and the Russian government. Even though it did, the report apparently does state that the Russian government interfered in American election. But given that so much has in American media has been invested into this scandal, and now finally there's a kind of reevaluation of what was going on in the last two years, I thought I I have to ask all three of you: What do you make of Russia Gate now that we finally heard that Trump is? apparently not an agent of Putin. Well, I, I can say that working with, with Russian colleagues for the last several years, they've always been deeply skeptical of, of the, the allegations. I would say even, maybe even to a fault, because I think a lot of what they were suspicious of, they, they rejected even the idea that, that the, the cyber attacks were Russian, and that seems to be relatively incontrovertible at this point. Now, that doesn't say anything about the influence it had, and that's to say nothing of the Internet Research Agency's trolling, which I think sort of elicited the most skepticism from Russians and maybe just people in general. But um, it, it, it's, it's been a very frustrating time. I'm glad to see the it over. <laughs> Not because justice was served or anything. I have no idea about that. But just f personally speaking, it'll be nice for, I mean, if indeed Russiagate does go away, because it's in the headlines this week more than ever, it seems, even though it's supposedly over. <laughs> but uh, um, <laughs> it's, it's frustrating for me because my job is to translate news about Russia from Russian, the idea being, hey, Americans, or hey, Anglophone world, uh, there are things happening in the Russian media that you would love to know about, and here they are in English, you wouldn't know about them otherwise. And naturally, at least in the United States, the attitude is, oh, well, where's the smoking gun? What's the, where, where's that, where's the story about Russiagate that we're never getting? And the answer is, is that it doesn't exist, at least not so much in Russia, because it's, this is an American story. And I don't mean that necessarily insofar as it's, it, it, it interests Americans. That's certainly true. But even the, the, the sources and the, 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 like the geography of where the story has been, has been uh, written and, and investigated seems to be mostly in in the United States, in Washington, and just not so much in Russia. I mean, you have some stuff about the Trump Tower and meetings at the Miss Universe pageant and so on. But for the most part, it's really been an American-based story. And so uh, if it is indeed over, happy days. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, well, um, one thing that's interesting, th I mean, true, this is an American story. And uh, if you look at the, uh, the way it was reported, it was reported mainly from Washington, from the U.S., rarely from Moscow. Uh, because even uh, if you report it from Moscow, uh, Moscow-based uh, American or international uh, journalists, they would immediately come uh, up with very skeptical stories. Because if you know even, even, even something, some little something about the way Russia works, you would immediately notice that uh, this, uh, this whole uh, Trump Tower story was... Like really fishy. I, uh, the people they would always mention there, the Russian contacts, would they're like third tier, four, four, four tier figures, uh, completely inadequate. You wouldn't expect any people like that to be really important. Uh, the, the, all this probably means that Trump had very bad contacts uh, in, in in Russia and. He he failed. The, the fact that he failed to do a project just means that it, I mean it's not that hard. It's just he failed, and uh, in Russia, and then to use this as uh, you know as uh, as a, as proof of of uh, some kind of conspiracy really was weird. It doesn't mean uh, that there was no what's called meddling. That was the meddling was was there, uh, but again, one thing about it is that the Russian uh, secret services uh, have been doing this for years and for ages. So none of that is particularly new. It's just that by now is so well known. Uh, so it was from the start. It was a kind of a strange story, and so that's why it was uh, it was a lot of skepticism in Russia about it. And and right now, after the new, I mean, the news a few days ago when uh, the uh, the summary of the report was published was basically a dud in Moscow, like really uh, very very little interest. And then there was this huge um, news about a, in a, a, a former government uh, minister arrested, and that was a huge, huge, big news compared to. So I mean, uh, you would kind of think that this entire Russia story would be major, major, major uh, story in in Russia, but it was not. Strangely, especially on the independent side of the media. Uh, circus because the, the, the TV, the state-run media, they would of course mention it all the time, but with their own spin, which is uh, kind of a very, pre very predictable way they they, they treat it. I th sorry, I think I think that's been true throughout the entire RussiaGate story. It's not just with the Mueller report being over and mm -hmm. and the summary coming out. Like throughout, and I c and like this is something that I've noticed working in Medusa. Not only do they tend to not really, I mean, like there'll be some kind of major story involving RussiaGate, and I'll think like, wow, like. That seems like a big thing in this story. And the, the interest in the Medusa newsroom is like, yeah, we'll do like a maybe a short little news brief on it. Like, and then I'll see the traffic, and it won't be that, that large. And I'll think, well, I guess they knew their audience on that. But it's, it's shocking to me how, I mean, like when, I, when I talk to relatives, and I don't have any Russian background, when I talk to them about my job, they naturally assume it's, it's entirely Russiagate stuff. Like, they probably mm -hmm. think I'm like working for Mueller or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but the, 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 the interest that like drives the different news cycles in Russia and in the United States at least are they're very different. Yeah, and I remember long discussions why uh, on the Russian social media why Americans called Mueller Mueller, 
uh, that that almost attracted more attention than the. Yeah, well, I mean, having flown from Brexit Britain, obviously, it, it's you know, it's always been quite quite charming for me to find somewhere where there's sort of even more lunatic discourse um, than, than, than at home. But but the point is exactly. I mean, th this was never about Russia. This was always about Trump, and it was driven as much as anything else by political, ideological, and even aesthetic dislike of Trump. <laughs> in which obviously you know, anything goes. And you know, again, to, to pick up on a point that's just been made, I mean, actually, you know, if one looks at the Western Press Corps in Moscow, one or two of them are really dim, but actually most of them are very, very good. They're assiduous, they've got language skills, they know the country and so forth. And they themselves were just so frustrated that there are all these important stories and their newsrooms were just simply saying, yeah, but, but what about Trump? And saying, there is nothing about Trump. So, I mean, I think this, this, this has been, in some ways, not just a sign of the fact that, in fact, that in sort of modern media, we're still in the position where relatively few gatekeepers actually can shape much of the, the, the narrative. But it also says something about Russia, that in some ways, and I think this is a sort of a, a wider point and something that sort of, in my recent book, we need to talk about Putin. <laughs> I mentioned that in, in, in some ways, you know, basically we all have our own personal Putin. And likewise, we all have our own personal Russia, that in fact, Actually, what Russia is matters much, much less than how we would like to imagine it. And just so for a while, Russia became precisely this kind of um, cartoonish um, Soviet Union, actually, where everyone works in lockstep and there is a single grand plan and no doubt in a drawer in the Kremlin, there is precisely this strategy as to how we will use Agent Donald. Um, and, and, and so forth, and and you know, and all the people are actually saying, Russia's not like that. I'm not saying it's it's an, always a nice place. Exactly, there was meddling. There is this kind of rather sort of bizarre, um, bottom-up kind of entrepreneurial people sort of trying to do things that they think will please the boss. But that doesn't matter. That wasn't the picture, and the reality took second place to to, to, to the fantasy Russia. And I think this is, this is what what we found. And therefore, the irony is that, as it were, the real story, which is about meddling, and I, I agree with, with Kevin, that, you know, it's questionable how effective it was and whether it did the, j the job. We would always like to have a, a, a scapegoat. And believe me, if I could blame Brexit on Putin <laughs> rather than the insanity of my fellow citizens, I, I, would, be, I would be so happy. But you know, we actually we have to realize the Russians have not generated magic mind control powers. But nonetheless, I mean, there is a real story there. But it's it become almost relegated to the, yeah, yeah, there was that. Because everyone was so excited by this thought that somehow Trump had been suborned. Final point I'd make on that. If I had been a case officer sitting in Yaseneva, headquarters of the Foreign Intelligence Service, outskirts of Moscow, and I'd been running Agent Donald, I mean, for a start, even in his election campaign, I've been saying, I've been saying, for God's sake, stop praising Putin. You actually need to be telling everyone that Putin is the Antichrist so that when we do activate you and use you to our advantage, no one will think it's because you're soft on Putin. They'll think that there's some good geopolitical reason. I mean, so many really basic points just did not add up, but that didn't matter. Everyone was excited by the thought that they could blame Trump on a, you know, a foreigner, a nefarious foreigner. And everyone was thinking that this was going to be the grand story. The number of times, because I also work on organized crime, um, particularly when the whole business of money in the Trump Towers was an issue, 
look, I mean, obviously the Trump Organization is, let's see, this is going to be put out as a podcast. Some would say um, a pyramidal, uh, sort of basically, um, organization in the sense of it constantly needs more money coming in because it's so badly managed. And as a result of that, you know, basically any money, as long as you don't come in sort of basically with, with, with a suitcase full of cocaine smeared hundred dollar bills, essentially you're going to get through the door. But you know, there was a point where basically every week I'd be being rung up by a different journalist who was saying, oh, you know, we found a connection with this particular Russian business person. Is he Russian mafia? And I'd have to live down to their every expectation of the woolly-minded academic by saying, well, it depends what you mean by mafia. Because the guys they're talking about are not these tattooed leg breakers. They were shadowy, dubious business people who basically dominate the Russian business scene, and especially the kind of Russian business scene that is buying glitzy apartments in Trump Tower, New York, or whatever. But the point is, everyone was thinking, this is going to be my Pulitzer Prize moment. I'm going to connect Putin to um, the Russian mafia and the Russian mafia to Trump. Whereas actually there is a real story. It's a real story about venality and incompetence and corruption and a whole bunch of people, not just one person, who basically don't see um, that there's anything wrong with taking in dubious money, who don't see the boundaries between what should be legal, illicit, and above all ethical, and what isn't. But that's been lost because we th there was this much more exciting story that somehow he was this deep color mole, as if he could ever have kept that secret. This, of course, begs the question, you know, during all of the, the media around Trump, Russia, Putin, uh, you know, every rich Russian seemed to be an oligarch and every oligarch seemed to be personally connected to Vladimir Putin. And of course, this begs the question, the fact that Putin does play a very oversized dominant role in our American understanding, general understanding of Russia. You know, he's either a mastermind, uh, you know, some sort of super villain. Um, so the question then is, is, and this goes to you, Mark, specifically, uh, since you just wrote a whole book about it, how should we understand Putin? What is his place in all of this, this Russia system? I mean, I think most importantly, we should understand him as a symptom rather than a cause. I mean, I, in some ways, I think of Putin as, as the last Soviet leader in that, you know, he is of that generation. I mean, he's, he's the last leader probably who will be that generation of homo sovieticus who were raised and socialized in Soviet times. He's of that generation that also ha had sort of as adults to cope with that traumatic moment where literally overnight they went from being citizens of one of the great superpowers of the world to being citizens of this ramshackle, almost failing country that no one really cared about anymore. Um, and, and again, I, I don't make everything about Brexit, but I would say that if British experience is anything, it takes a long time to learn that you're no longer that special. <laughs> um, you know, and and you, you kick against it. You, you, fight, you try and find ways of saying, well, no, actually, this is why. This is why we're really special. It may, okay, our GDP may not be up there, we may not still be able to colour large portions of the world red. It's always red, isn't it? Um, but nonetheless, there are other more civilizational, more foundational reasons why we as a people are naturally special. Um, and in a way, Putin came along and, and he, was, he was both agent, but also, I mean, and I mean that not in the secret sense, um, but you know, he, was, he was an actor in this process, but he was also someone who was picked by other interests at a time when they basically felt, look, the country is falling apart, we need someone else, someone who is, you know, sober. 
um, someone who actually can, can, can speak for our interests and someone who will bring us back to where we should be, make Russia great again. Um, and I mean, in that context, I mean, I think we, we need to understand Putin in that sense as actually part of a sort of wider process of Russia, rather than precisely this bare-chested superhero who took a country and reshaped it. Final point is, because there's a, a whole series of myths about Putin that I explore in my book, we need to talk about Putin. Okay, last plug for that one. I'll move on to plugging other books for the rest of the talk. Um, but I mean, one of, the, one of the many myths that really bugs me is this idea precisely that he is this brooding geopolitical grandmaster, sitting there with his kind of three-dimensional chessboard, while, while, while we in the West, you know, are still sort of trying desperately to understand the basic rules of drafts, checkers for you. Um, but the point is, he's not. He's not that risk-averse. He's not that daring. He's actually, on the whole, very hands-off in, in many, except when it comes to distributing large contracts to his friends. Um, actually, we have very, very much bought in to a carefully manufactured myth that fits our needs, because we would rather have him as a Bond villain, responsible for all of our um, woes, and also fits into the Kremlin's needs too. They have, they have done their best to package him in those terms, all those bare-chested antics and such like. Um, and that's actually how I think Russia itself, in some ways, is trying to, to, to um, package it. There was this, I mean, I must admit, because I'm essentially morally bankrupt, I loved it. There was this video called Yaruski Okupant, I am a Russian occupier. That was this splendid, very, very sort of fancy, high-tech, you know, so, you know, you, 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 want, you want to call us occupiers? Well, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll own that. We are occupiers. You know, we occupied the Baltic states and we built factories and they built ships and then they asked us to leave and we left and now they're cleaning toilets throughout the European Union. And so forth. It was, it was very much a kind of um, attempt to appropriate the, you know, the, the outside myth of Russia as being the bad boys of geopolitics. Say, okay. You want us to be the bad boys? We're going to be the bad boys. And I think that actually has become, in many ways, a Russian strategy of sorts. I've been playing with this concept because we have hard power, military force, and soft power, the force of example. In some ways, I, I, I think the Russians have been playing with a sort of a, something I've been calling dark power, which is the force of being feared. That you actually want to look more formidable. You know, that sense of, well, no one's going to be our friends. People have decided that we're the bullies in the schoolyard. Well, okay. We want to be the biggest, baddest, scariest bullies there. Because then no one messes with you. People will actually volunteer to give you something out of their lunchbox. Um, and I, th I think in some ways that has actually been something that the Russians have, have fallen into using as a strategy. And again, I think that fits us. Because so, so we have collaborated, both the Kremlin and the West collaborate in building this mythology. Uh. Well, yeah, uh, that's um, yeah. I agree. Yeah, but I would uh, I would say this: um, there are lots of schools of thought on Putin, obviously, and because this is the subject, uh, even in Russia. But uh, I would say there are two poles, uh, two extremes. Uh, one school essentially saying that uh, Putin is a tyrannical. So this is a new totalitarianism and uh, I mean you can pick up uh, Masha Gesson's book uh, even has the word the totalitarian in, in the title but then there is this on the opposing end there is um, uh, a school that says that uh, Putin is the the is the wizard of Oz kind of figure so essentially he is uh, he's absent uh, 
uh, and again, when you talk to all, all those friends from the administration, from the presidential administration, one thing that you keep getting is I don't have uh, friends there. I mean, it's, it's it's the it's kind of a myth uh, to, because you get a lot of that uh, in Russia. They say that Putin is never. Uh, in his office, he's like very lazy. He's take he's taking long hours in the gym, swimming. Um, whatever he's doing, he's not uh, working with documents, as, as was the phrase about Boris Yeltsin, which was code for uh, him drinking. So basically, Putin is known for not drinking much, uh, but uh, he's not known for working a lot. And so, but so you have these two opposing theories. Uh, no, no, uh, you cannot either verify or I mean, you cannot. I mean, it's just these. This is uh, the uh, the Kremlin and the uh, the administration. They love to keep all these um, things bubbling and being discussed. They love the existence of various schools uh, of thought. So it's it's hard to. Uh, to tell, so P P Putin, even in Russia, remains a, a kind of a mystery figure, a myth. And uh, for now, uh, there is very little that can be seriously, seriously do, uh, do, done to um, verify either uh, of the theories or any theories in between. Uh, to you know, what exactly is is his. Uh, uh, his his role. I kind of tend to be closer to the Wizard of Oz uh, school, uh, but at the same time, uh, it's it's very clear that Putin is the person behind uh, all those uh, high-profile arrests, court cases, trials that uh, happen increasingly. Uh, often in, in in Russia right now, you cannot possibly think that he is he has nothing to do with this. He he does uh, because it, it 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 doesn't work this way. It, it, he should be the, he should be the person to approve. But kind of when you say behind, as in he initiates, or just simply someone else says, "Look, I want to take so and so down, boss. Is that okay?" He and he says, "Fair enough." Yeah, I, th I think the theory as the theory, again, it's impossible to. To, to verify this, but the theory, and it's very common in Russia, is that basically Putin gets a lot of uh, various suggestions and, and uh, nefarious uh, plans uh, being brought to his desk, and then and, and then he sifts through that, uh, and then he approves some of that, and he disapproves some of that. Uh, he is. Uh, I, I've heard numerous stories uh, from people who used to work with him that he very rarely proposes anything of substance himself. He listens to people, and people come to him with uh, all kinds of projects. And he his role is um, to choose. Uh, and so apparently, and, and we see, I mean, from, from, from the news, we see that what kinds of people he chooses to, uh, to, um, uh, to arrest and to go uh, to to give it a go, and what kinds of people remain, and what kind of kinds of people basically remain outside of the news c c circle. Uh, uh, and it's it's a separate subject. I won't go into this, but, but basically, this is the kind of the going theory about him that he is an arbiter, 
a person who chooses th um, various projects uh, rather than uh, has a strategy of his own. Well, this isn't really my wheelhouse. Um, I, I, I don't write op-eds or books like either of these two esteemed gentlemen. Uh, but I will say that reading Russian columns and summarizing them for a newsletter for Medusa, I, I, I would say that, and this is, I, I suppose I'm agreeing with Max here, that there's, there's not really a consensus when it comes to Putin's role in the regime or in sort of everyday politics. And well, I, w I will say that it seems to me, and maybe this is just the bias of what I've been reading and the sources I tend to choose, but it's, it, it does seem as though there's, there is a perception that since the annexation of Crimea, Putin has been sort of distracted with foreign adventurism, and he's delegated more domestic policy. Uh, and while that's been happening, they've also sort of been clearing out a lot of the old guard, and they've been introducing what Tatyana Stanovaya says is uh, like a corporate structure, and that um, Kirienka, the, the first deputy chief of staff, or first, I forget what exactly his title is, but that he's been kind of treating it more as a business, and that he's has these sort of managerial training schools, and that this is sort of a significant development in the, the managerial style that the Kremlin uses. Um, so I guess, the, the, yeah, the only really like noteworthy thing I would say is that uh, you get, I mean, you get very fundamental disagreements on this this issue in Russia as well, which you obviously get in in Western scholar scholarly work also. Uh, just very quickly, I, I think I have a project idea for anyone who would in, be interested because it's a subject in need of a, a study. Is uh, Kirienko Sergei Kirienko is the I think is deputy head of the administ uh, presidential administration in Russia. He is known to be a follower of something called methodology. It's a... Uh, KPIs and stuff. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's not exactly a science, but it's a kind of a venerable late Soviet uh, school of thinking uh, with one, at least one huge book behind it written by uh, <coughs> uh, one uh, Soviet philosopher, Shedravitsky, Georgi Shedrovitsky, and this is called methodology, and it's uh, it's uh, this entire um, well philosophy, um, um, not exactly philosophy, but kind of a very weird um, late Marxian Soviet, but not not uh, conformist Soviet uh, way of thinking <coughs> that was meant to be a kind of a, 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 a way out for, for Russia, for the, for the so then Soviet Union, to, to, to build a proper, a properly functioning um, management, uh, govern, gov governance. So, uh, and the followers of, of methodology, of, there are lots of them in, uh, in the government right now, especially in presidential administration, and the Skolkovo School, which is the um, the kind of a business school uh, uh, in Moscow, and strangely, the subject is is not studied. I, I, I is a mystery to me, really. But it, it's an existing. It's not like a. It's, it's not something that's um, some people you know hide, conceal, or something. It's a. It's it's, it's an open. Uh, information and you can look into it and it would be really interesting to 
to figure this out and look into this and uh, to see how it works and what it means. Right now, Kiryenko is a very, very powerful man in Russia. He's uh, he's managing um, a huge part of the day-to-day domestic uh, policies. I want to actually address this issue of the the arrests of of Russian officials in particular, because just in the last two days, there have been two big arrests. Today was Viktor Ishaev, who is the former governor of Khabarovsk, and then yesterday was Mikhail Abizov, who is a former deputy prime minister under Dmitry Medvedev. And and then I, I found it interesting this morning, found it a really interesting statistic that uh, that was in a report by a think tank that said that since 2014, 173 officials, there have been criminal cases initiated against 173 Russian officials. And the most startling thing I found with this, between 1992 to 2013, there were only 58 cases initiated against Russian officials. So I... I want to ask your thoughts on what do you make of this? What's going on in the last couple of years with these high profile cases against and low profile cases against uh, government officials for corruption and other crimes? Well, again, a theory, uh, because they don't publish, uh, you know, a document saying that we are, we've just started a campaign, right? <laughs> uh, so basically, this theory, I think, is that uh, Putin uh, has over taken um, has taken over this uh, anti-corruption agenda that was initially uh, spearheaded by Alexei Navalny, uh, and I mean this. Ex- yes, this I know this again from friends in the administration. I know I've been hearing this for years and years that uh, that was the one way for Putin to um, to to support his um, popularity and his ratings, his approval ratings, which is kind of a almost a religion uh, in Moscow. Uh, so the the way to do this would be to uh, to initiate high-profile anti-corruption campaigns, and apparently this. Has happened. They suddenly, they they finally uh, started doing this. And uh, one of the, uh, the uh, you know the ideas behind it apparently is to to over to take it over and to to to, to sideline Navalny, who uh, again mysteriously remains um, uh, you know he's he's not in jail. And uh, it's it's very strange to say this, but knowing Russia, I, I I'm still amazed at, at, at this fact. But I mean, it's very good. I, I know him. We we are well, almost friends. But uh, I mean, being a you know a, to, you know, I I still uh, I don't quite understand why uh, is he is still um, well mostly avoided um, long jail. Uh, terms although he was uh, charged a few times um, and tried so basically this is a case of the Kremlin learning to be uh, becoming as a kind of an an anti-corruption center itself in its own way of course and uh, with uh, essentially uh, you know its own filtering of the candidates 
and its own uh, agenda that is different from uh, would I, of of course different from a, an independent anti-corruption activist. Of course, it's a tool. Of course, it's a policy. Uh, it's a kind of kind of governance tool. But still, uh, the hope apparently in the Kremlin is that in the eyes of uh, the population, Putin would uh, come out as a, mm, as a, you know, as a, as a real crusader. Do, do, do you also see this as part of, because the other process that's going on is a lot of replacement of governors, a lot of bringing in kind of younger technocratic people into the regions. Do you see this as part of a similar process of, of kind of cadre renewal as well? Well, but one thing to uh, just, just very quickly add that, one should not overstate the central di direction in, in this because there are numerous parties around the administration and very often they would uh, kill each other off and all those arrested governors or um, former government ministers, they are victims of their rivals uh, in, in from some... Uh, other party but this does not mean apparently that Putin uh, is completely out of the picture he still again the, the theory goes still approves uh, the, uh, the 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 decision and uh, high profile arrests do normally do not go without his uh, agreement <laughs> Essentially, what do you make of, of some of these high, the, the wave of high profile arrests, particularly in the last couple of years? Like, what do you, especially since you monitor the media a lot and have to summarize this, what is your, what do you, have you noticed in the way it's just talked about in the press? The most common theory that's floated is that this is sort of the Medvedev clan being like decimated, and maybe it'll finally get to Medvedev, or maybe Medvedev will be the only one left standing. And that's either, that could be the way of removing him entirely, or maybe they're setting him up to be the tandem, you know, 3.0 guy, but he'll have even less of a power base, so he'll really be a figurehead this time even more than he was already. Um, or maybe it's the FSB becoming sort of self-aware, like uh, Skynet or something, and like, you know, Maybe it's, it's uh, maybe it's 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 actually not so political, and it's what we're seeing is commercial disputes finally, you know, manifesting either independently. The Silvi Key are going after it themselves, or they've signed on to some new campaign with somebody or various groups, and everybody's getting filthy rich by kind of taking out the low-hanging fruit that is the Medvedev, you know, former associates and so on. Um, this is m very much like the essence of Putin and the regime. I think that the 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 scope of the disagreements is such that it's it all you could say is that no one's really sure um and yeah and again this is like such high level stuff that for a lowly translator and editor i don't feel like i could possibly you know give you the truth of the matter um but i'm not sure that anyone could to be honest yeah. although mark is, I, I, I put good confidence in what you could say on this. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm less held back by humility um, i think I'd, actually I, I would suggest that one of the reasons why it is so difficult to know exactly what's going on is because I think I would suggest that there are three processes that are all taking place. One of them, precisely as Max said, is this business of, of the state feeling that needs to present itself more directly as speaking to this issue of corruption. There clearly is a factor. Whether they really can get away with that, I don't know. Because, let's be honest, um, the really corrupt people are the ones who are closest to Putin. But nonetheless, they may well be trying by certain sort of cherry-picked prosecutions. I think there is a second process, though, that in some ways, I mean, I think of this as kind of like um, late Putinism, 
there is this sense of decay, that there is a sense that no one's quite sure what's going to happen in 2024 when Putin's current presidential term ends. But there is definitely a sense that he's, he's getting older, he's less interested, he's less on top of the job. Um, and I think for that reason, there is more of, a, I think, a pressure, a scurrying to seize assets while you can and seize political positions while you can, rather than thinking, well, this current status quo will continue indefinitely, and therefore we, we, you know, we don't need to be rapacious now. It's much more, I think, short-termist. And therefore, I think a lot of long-lasting competitions and struggles are now being brought into the sort of direct offensive phase. So rather than just thinking, ah, at some point, I'm going to deal with X, you think, this is that some point. And then thirdly, um, I mean, this is the same reason actually one sees much more in the way of uh, prosecutions or organised crime figures. I think we should not totally rule out the fact that there are people within the system, particularly the younger people, who actually want to do their jobs, who are not totally corrupted, who appreciate the limitations of the system in which they operate, but nonetheless ultimately would like to, you know, if they're prosecutors or police officers or whatever, actually do the job they signed up for. In some ways, I mean, I think I'm quite unusual for an academic in that precisely I, I seek to t talk to Russian police officers. Most of my colleagues try to avoid that experience. Um, but you know, if I think of the, the current generation of not just beat cops, but you know, investigators and so forth, they're very, very different from the generation I encountered in the 1990s, where essentially I think they'd fall into a survivalist mode where corruption was everything. And if your wallet is fat enough, you'll walk away from anything. Now, they appreciate that there are limitations. But nonetheless, there is a sense of a certain professionalism. And in some ways, this actually faintly reminds me of what I've heard about the Italian police in the 1970s, before they could actually, you know, the political situation changed and they were able to be unleashed against the mafia. Limitations to that parallel, Italy is not Russia, though there are certain distinct similarities. Um, but nonetheless, I think the, the point is, this is also, I think, a time in which actually a lot of the old mechanisms which stopped people from doing their jobs are that much weaker. A prosecution might be advanced not purely because some political rival wants to take over control of a business or whatever. It might well be advanced precisely because an investigator just simply thinks he or she has a good case. Five years ago, quite possibly everyone would be thinking, no, this is not the time to rock the boat. Soon as you start redistributing resources and assets. Everyone keeps jumping on the situation and, and, and you, you end up with a feeding frenzy. Everything's fine, so let's just keep the status quo. Now, though, the status quo is no longer fine. The status quo was already destabilised. So actually, it's a lot easier for those prosecutors to, to slip in the prosecutions. And then, quite possibly, it's approved not because it's just simply a good case, but exactly because, you know, someone's business rival or political rival says, hmm, yeah, it's quite handy. I'd like to see that so-and-so that, that -so dragged out of their office um, and, and, and put in a CISO, a pretrial detention centre. But the initiative doesn't necessarily come from there. So, I, so I, I would say, actually, we have... The reason why it's so confusing is precisely we have three different processes at work. The Kremlin trying to seize the anti-corruption agenda. Um, everyone just trying to seize everything they can because the sense that this is actually a moment which is not going to last... And as a result of that, an opportunity for a new generation 
of, of prosecutors and so forth to actually push their own investigations further. I wanted to talk about this interesting contrast because, you know, a lot of talk of Putin's fourth term is tends to come along with language of stagnation, of ossification of the system. They, 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 they're not, there isn't any grand vision in terms of reforms. It's all very technocratic. But at the same time, when you look at Russian society, and, and I think a, a lot of a lot of uh, reporting in the United States does you know injustice to reporting on Russian society in many respects because it's often seen as kind of passive, zombified, inert. But when you look at Russian society, it's incredibly creative, incredibly dynamic and entrepreneurial. There's a lot of amazing things come, going on in terms of you know the arts, literature, even politics. Uh, especially amongst the younger generation that you know grew up after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I want to ask you three, how do you understand Russian society in, in kind of general sweeping terms uh, within uh, that, that exists under this system or within this system? Mm. Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I've been thinking about it and uh, well, uh, actually being part of it. Um, I think that Russian society. I mean, it's 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 very diverse and it's um, and it's uh, vibrant uh, and especially for the I think the past probably ten years, especially since uh, 2011, 2012, and not just because of the protest movement. It's just I think coincided. Also, the generational change uh, played a role. Uh, the, the kind of bottom-up movements and changes have started to appear and s being seen and felt. And uh, and this rarely has to do with politics, actually, because people simply uh, uh, are trying to avoid, not just out of fear, which does play a role, but uh, also in a, in a kind of uh in a sort of a condescending uh view of politics that it's uh that is uh, very common uh in especially in kind of cultural circles um uh, and and in business by the way so um there is uh there are lots of even things that you can measure that show that there is uh i don't know things from like growing interpersonal trust uh, which is a lot stronger now than used to be in the 90s and the 2000s, to uh, people's uh, readiness uh, when they respond to polls, uh, uh, to take part in movements uh, organized, not just mainly not politically, but uh, to solve issues, to, to help each other. Um, and yes, the cultural scene is large and um, interesting. So we have, I think, in Russia, a growing bottom-up um, development that is not you can you, you cannot really notice it from from here definitely, but uh, also because the, the political side and then the, the kind of the the Putin uh, discussions. They dominate uh, the the reporting, the 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 uh, me media uh, scene. But in fact, the societal changes are, I would say, 
more important and um, uh, hopefully they would um, they would continue it and at some point will manifest in, in, in something more uh, pronounced right now it's it, it's more it's, it, it feels more like a promise um, but it definitely is uh, growing uh, one thing one uh, one one last thing I, I had uh, Russia um, and this is kind of my perspective. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm right in thinking that. But uh, my generation s- saw this society go through an incredibly uh, difficult, hard, uh, heartbreaking uh, time in the early '90s when uh, th- this whole system collapsed and people lost their jobs life perspectives uh, they 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 had to start anew almost everything but the the country went through this uh and the society survived and even prospered uh, i mean to the extent it was possible uh and by uh, right now russian society is, is has a lot of, a lot of experience uh, it could share a lot of uh, of you know ways of overcoming these crises that I s- I think some of the Western societies are going through uh, right now with uh, with all all those changes in politics and uh, uh, you know centrist. Uh, government centrist political forces uh, losing to more extremist forces and uh, the general disappointment in uh, uh, democratic institutions and things like that um, Russia has went through uh, but the thing uh, obviously the, the point is that Russian society doesn't uh, has no authority has no voice it's not present as uh, outside of Russia as a as a kind of a, a, a place that could be mm, respected, as it were. Um, and I don't know whether that's possible, can it happen, uh, I don't know. But uh, being Russian, I know from inside that R- Russia is not, Russian society is not all about, you know, Putin, survival, you know, mafia, uh, things like that it's 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 also very much about uh you know not just survival values but self-expression values to use this but uh you know um it's very creative and very thoughtful in a way and it's um um i don't know uh, whether that would be uh, one day possible for uh, russia to manis- to fa- manifest it so probably through culture uh, mm, uh, and become more, uh, more of a, an, uh, you know, authoritative and respected uh, voice I- in the world. I mean, let me start by, in some ways, pushing back when you sort of said right at the end. I mean, I, I, I agree with most of what you said. When you said, "Oh well," it expresses itself probably through culture, because I often feel that culture is kind of civil society's um, consolation prize. It's, you know, yeah, you haven't got much else, but you've got good ballet or you've got great underground rock music or something. And I think actually that is in some ways, and I'm not saying for a moment this is what you're aiming at, but I think in, in some ways I think that that is understating the extent to which actually there is already a really strong civil society in Russia. 
The point is, it's much about the idiom. I mean, this is, this is not totalitarianism. This is not North Korea. This is not Stalinism. It's not the Soviet Union either. I mean, this is, this is a very non-ideological authoritarianism. You know, it basically just simply said, look, just don't mess with the things that matter to us. You know, our, our capacity to steal from the country, um, you know, our, our capacity to rig the votes and so forth. But yeah, otherwise, what, what you want to do is, to a large extent, up to you. We don't care about what's going on in your minds. We don't want to actually shake that. We just want to ch change your actions, which is a good thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's the ones who want to, to mess with your mind that are the really dangerous regimes. But what we then find is, in fact, that there is a huge amount of civil society in Russia. But the point is, people can't call it politics, when of course it is. You have a really strong environmental movement. Now, of course, why is there a need for a strong environmental movement? It's because of the political priorities that are placed on various sort of byproducts and activities and so forth. You have strong movements that are often essentially about, you have not done what you have promised. Um, our school still does not have the new roof it was meant to have. The road that was meant to be finished by now hasn't been finished and so forth. But the etiquette is such that no, everyone almost has to kind of bend over backwards and say, no, this is not politics. No, 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 this is not political. This is just about this one very specific issue. Because if you call it politics, you begin to frame yourself as a challenger to the state. And the state says, right. You want us to get heavy? We can get heavy, no problem. So, you know, what what happens is everyone says, no, 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 it's not about politics. We're actually, we're, we're good, loyal. You know, Putin said that we should have this, and therefore we're just speaking up for the things that Putin said. You know, everyone tries to pretend that it's not political, when in fact this is precisely the emergence of the basis of politics in Russia. You've got actually quite a bit of um, labor activism. Now, again, it can't take place through the structures of the formal unions because the unions are still basically instruments of the state or big local employers and so forth. So when we have industrial action, it tends to be wildcat, it tends to be local. You know, I mean, Max, your, your point about um, increasing solidarity within society, I mean, that actually is really important, bonds of trust and community. But nonetheless, it hasn't yet reached that institutional phase when you actually get sort of think people saying, OK, well, except in a few cases like the truckers' disputes, you know, but, oh, well, you're coming out in, in, in labour action, so will we. And because these are not formal structures, this is not through an official trade union, this is not announced, it doesn't have a, a media department and so forth, because most, for example, Western journalists scarcely get to travel much out of Moscow. And unless you're doing a colour piece about... Kazan, land of the Tatars, or something like that. Um, you know, no, you're not likely to be able to sell to your editor. I want to spend two weeks traveling the Russian hinterland trying to see what I can pick up about wildcat strikes amongst tram drivers. Um, you know, that doesn't get reported, but it's there. So, I mean, I think this is one of the interesting things, and I think the interesting sort of final point I'd make is context. I am an old, old man. Well, I mean, I'm not that old, but being on this panel of striplings makes me feel so. I did my PhD research in the final three years of the Soviet Union. And the fascinating thing there was, on the one hand, there was big P politics and political movements, particularly through the form of, of nationalism and so forth. But there was also this constant tension between people saying, well, actually, I have a movement, a civil society movement that wants to achieve a certain result. And others basically saying, well, the only way you're going to get that is by being part of a party or a grand movement or breaking free of the Soviet Union or whatever. So the constant struggle between realities of day-to-day -day life 
and people wanting to frame that in, in big picture terms. At the moment, people cannot frame it in big picture terms. That is something the state will not permit. But nonetheless, all those building blocks, all those senses of people actually saying, sod it, no. You know, we're not getting what we were meant to be getting. We're not getting what is our right. And we are willing to organize and act for that. That's all there. Yeah, I would just add that uh, um, um, that true. Uh, people understand very well that whenever you uh, pronounce this politics, it becomes dangerous. That's uh, that's very true. But um, uh, I think that Russia's movements are still they are different from the Chinese scene. I would some at some point I would think that the Chinese. Uh, protest movements uh, so Russia is kind of moving in that direction in the sense that uh, you have lots of uh, strikes and protests and uh, uh, meet, meet meetings and um, in, in in China but mostly people would go and and uh, and uh, stick to one issue and try and seek attention from the center so that the party leaders would come and help solve the issue and in Russia we have protests like that a lot uh, and people would declare that uh, you know we don't want Navalny here we, we, who is sometimes is code for politics so we, we just want to to solve uh, uh, an issue with a uh, I don't know landfill uh, or, or uh, some uh, factory that's uh, polluting uh, a, a lake or a river uh, but um, Still, I think that Russia is moving uh, is not fully moving in that sort of Chinese uh, direction because we do seem to have uh, um, uh, uh, this readiness for uh, for civic action, like brooding, growing. So, one t two two stories that have recently been in the news. One there was. In, near the Lake Baikal area, there was a town where there was going to be a water bottling facility built, and most of the water was earmarked for sales in China, and there was local hubbub about it, and Medvedev then sort of signed an, an, a government executive order saying, well, this thing better be up to code, and then the local investigators went in and said, mm, not up to code, okay, so it's, now it's in, it's in uh, jeopardy. And I, I, there's another instance more recently in, in Yakutia or Yakutsk, uh, there was a local woman raped by a, Kyrg, a Kyrgyz uh, migrant worker. That led to protests against sort of migrant workers in general in town. And I think today the governor instituted a ban on foreign citizens in various employment sectors, although it doesn't actually apply to Kyrgyz citizens because they're members of an economic trade union that exempts them. So I don't know if that was just meant to like appease the locals, that, assuming they wouldn't look into the finer details of that order or not, I don't know. But the, the, both examples, I think, are sort of what we've been hearing about, sort of vaguely political but not political movements focused on local initiatives and not made into this like regime level kind of grand scheme stuff. But it's, it's put out there and I think a lot of times the the hope is that the regime will pick it up and and try to co-opt it, which is what's happened in both of these cases. And so that would be like a success, I think, for the, the locals who were upset for their various reasons. Um, yeah. Uh, 
What's this question again? <laughs> that was what occurred to me with listening to. Yeah, no, it's it's basically <laughs> about how you how what is your view on on Russian society? I mean, you you in particular, yeah. right? Oh, right. You, so you, you look at a lot of social media. Yeah. You you're tapped into the media discourse. Yeah. And so I've been doing this sort of for better for worse for about ten years, and one thing that's shocked me when I think about it is how professionalized a lot of the people 10 years ago have become. Navalny's the most ex obvious example. I recently saw a documentary about his, uh, it's a Russian documentary about his 2018 presidential campaign. It was directed by one of the journalists that was recently killed in the Central African Republic, actually. And it's relatively sympathetic toward him and really not sympathetic toward Ksenia Subchak. So if you ever want to see Ksenia Subchak look really bad, go see this film. I think it's called Electing Russia. Um, I think it might be available on YouTube now, but um, between someone like Navalny and then I've mentioned him before, I don't know why I keep mentioning him so much, but Dobrhodov and, and The Insider and, you know, also like a lot of these, I mean, Medusa is a good example, too, of something that didn't exist 10 years ago. And now it's this whole thing. I mean, granted, there was Lenta, so there was there were legs already, but there there are these things, I think, that that didn't used to exist. And they, they, they a lot of them are overtly political. And I would say that I, I totally agree that that brings risks, and I think that's why we've seen a sort of tightening of the screws recently, is that as these, these social forces have become more professionalized, better organized, and better distributed, the government, the regime has responded with all of these absurd laws. Well, absurd, that's, I'm editorializing. These, these uh, draconian, well, that's still, these laws that they have, and I think that's in large part a response to the sort of political civil society getting better and mobilizing better. And finally, and just a brief answers, if what do you want people to understand about Russia that you feel isn't really understood? I Mon think oh, I, go ahead. Well, I, I think read more granular stories. And as Mark pointed out, there aren't going to be unfortunately, there are not going to be many in English. And if there if, if you get anything that isn't about Putin and it takes place in the in the regions, God forbid, it'll probably be some kind of, you know, hokey, heartwarming uh, uh, personal kind of interest story, but there, there are granular stories out there. Things about like, for instance, um, I don't know, a story about, about like uh, children who have to take care of their parents, or you can, th there, there are a lot of stories out there that are more now than there were before about, I don't know, people that need like, what do, well, they don't, I don't know if they need it, but like people who, who, who buy uh, like sexual assistance partners people who are like incapacitated in some way or another and how they navigate that in Russia where it's sort of equated with prostitution like stuff that has nothing to do with Putin I mean if you really wanted to you could probably tie it to him through like a series of Kevin Bacon like steps but <laughs> but but really they're not about Putin they're about ordinary people's lives and it's in the context of the bureaucracy and this and the culture and, and society they have to navigate and if you if you can read enough of that often enough I think that I, mean, I don't think this is going to tell you what Putin will do in 2024. It's not going to tell you what will happen next in Syria. But if only just for your soul, it'll, be, it'll help you understand another kind of people out there better. And I don't know if you'll come away thinking, oh, they're just like us, or oh, they're wonderful aliens, or they're horrible aliens. But at least you'll have a little more to base that on. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um in some ways, as someone who has just returned to the UK after spending ten and a half years abroad, surrounded by wonderful and horrible aliens in various countries, I mean, I, th I think that the key thing that I, I would really want people to understand is that Russia is not Mordor. 
Um, in the sense that there is this almost degree of, often you, you read about Russia, this kind of genetic and geopolitical predestination. That, well, that's just how Russia is. Russia's history, well, you know, started with the Mongols. And, and come on, for God's sake. I mean, you know, who tries to explain what happens today on the basis of 1,500 years of history? Yes, of course, it all has an effect. You know, the sort of the, the, the layers that are, you know, in geological time that are laid down. But the point is, actually, Russia is a country that is changing. It is a country which is, I mean, that, that, that should be one of the most banal points to make. But it's not. You know, I mean, the, the very fact that people still insist on, on, for God's sake, using Soviet iconography as a shorthand for Russia. I mean, how would America feel if basically a sort of, you know, shorthand was as a British colony? Um, no, you know, th th there comes a point we have to accept that Russia has moved on. Now, I, I am unfashionably optimistic about Russia's sort of prospects. Um, I do think that actually, you know, with, with Putin, this era is kind of the last gasp of a whole series of sort of toxic residues of late Soviet and the immediate post-Soviet time, rather than, than anything else. Um, I think we can see sort of all kinds of, of, of reasons for optimism, but at the same time, I'm a historian, so I'm allowed to be thinking in, in sort of generations rather than next Wednesday, things are going to be great. But I, th I think to, to allow, the allow Russia the possibility of change, allow Russians the possibility of change, I think that is something that, I mean, I'm not talking about obviously specialists and people who know Russia, but in terms of the, the general narrative about Russia, I think that would be a big step forward. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I would, I would very much agree. I would just also add that um, it's interesting to look uh, uh, at things uh, happening outside of Moscow, but it's difficult, and I, I think that uh, there is a certain dynamic uh, in Russia, the, the, a country of uh, of um, that is not growing in terms of population, and and, and um, there's a huge migration to big cities which uh, we have lots of shrinking cities uh, and huge, vast, empty spaces. Um, but this means that essentially you have Moscow and St. Petersburg a smaller, on a smaller scale uh, as, as magnets, as places where you have a very high-density uh, life uh, where you have, uh, because of that, competition and... Um, vibrant media and, and uh, culture, but then you have the rest of the country that uh, that is different. And very often, um, uh, what one of the things I've been looking is the is the um, is the fate of the uh, housing in Russia. It's a it's a big issue because um, like most of the housing was built in the sixties and seventies, it's aging and becoming a problem. And whereas in Moscow you can solve it, but essentially by pouring money into it and doing it as a, a kind of in a in an authoritarian way, essentially bailing out, buying, um, you know, raising this uh, these buildings and building anew. Whereas in the rest of the country you simply cannot do it because there's no money, and in many for many many issues is the case, and which kind of. I think means that the rest of the country is more uh, potentially uh, has has a lot of pot uh, potential for uh, for 
solidarity, citizen participation, horizontal developments rather than because Moscow is on the one hand being a, a very um, I mean it's sparkling it looks amazing especially for the past three to four years it's like I myself am amazed actually uh, but the rest of the country does not li look like this and uh, so Moscow is, is a very strange phenomenon because of the high density and because of uh, it, it has like zero unemployment uh, it has uh, uh, you know, lots of everything, like a hundred theaters, um, and I don't know, everything. Uh, but the rest of the country is very, very different. And so this dynamic between Moscow and the rest of the country, I think, is something to watch uh, because it's um, is there's a growing, growing uh, tension in the regions because they see that the money, resources, people moving into Moscow and uh, and this is something that has to be, you know, they, they, they are building up some responses out there uh, in the rest of the country. You know, we hear a lot about uh, a new Cold War, right? This is a kind of the new watchword, and we hear it from people on the right, and we also hear it people on the left to some extent. Um, what, what do you think of this, this the, the relations between the United States and Russia in terms of and this idea of the new Cold War? And, and how does the how does each country kind of understand each other, in your view, in terms of how it's portrayed in the media? Uh, and and it, how does yeah, how does the United States portray Russia in the media versus how does Russia portray the United States and their relationship? Well, actually, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to particularly talk about how the U.S. media presents it, because I think that other people could, could probably sort of speak better to that. But the thing that strikes me, actually, is the, the, the level of mutual misunderstanding um, is really quite striking. Um, and particularly, I mean, I find that in, in Russia, there is a considerable degree of what we could think of as mirror imaging, um, that they have a tendency to assume that essentially the West is really like them, just much more hypocritical. Um, you know, that, that, that we are just sort of sanctimonious and, and, and claim virtue. Now, I mean, there is a lot of truth in that, let's be perfectly honest. We are often deeply hypocritical. But I think we are ultimately whiskey priests in that, you know, we, we have a sense of what we should be doing and, and a belief that we'd like to have a kind of moral policy. We just tend to fail to live up to that. Um, but I think that, that's different from just simply being to total hypocrites. Um, and so, actually, I mean, I find that so much Russian um, coverage, in my experience, of, of the United States is really kind of criminology, but peering through the other side of the binoculars. It, again, it, it assumes much more strategy on the part of the Americans than really is there. It tends to, to assume that there's these phenomenally complex machinations at work. I mean... The main thing, which, I mean, there's this ridiculous talk about, you know, Russian hybrid warfare. Well, you know, when the Russians talk about Gibridnaya Voina, they see it as an American strategy. The Americans are the ones who can destabilize regimes. And let's be honest, currently events in Venezuela seem to be determined to prove them right. But the point is, I mean, the number of times I've spoken to people who are intelligent, cosmopolitan, well-connected figures within the sort of the broad national security establishment. And I say, look... You know, the CIA wishes it had the capability to topple regimes with these magic tactics and keep it from being leaked to the Washington Post within two weeks. 
Um, and, and that's always kind of waved away. They have an assumption that the West, and America in particular, is that much more together, strategic, and powerful than it really is. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, Cold War is a metaphor at best. I mean, Cold War used to be a system of relationships. It was a uh, set of rules. Were, there were two camps, and uh, Washington was running its part of the world. Moscow was running its part of the world. Moscow has no part of the world to run right now. It may pretend to do so, but it doesn't really. And all those um, stories about uh, Russia's, uh, Russia, you know, the Russian connection in uh, here and there, you know, Italy, Spain, um, um, Africa. I mean, there are attempts, but you cannot really compare that to what it used to uh, to be uh, under the, during the Soviet times. So basically, there is. I don't see a Cold War there, really. Uh, but it, and also the West is no longer a solid monolith thing. It probably never was. But I mean, right now, uh, where is the West? It's, I mean, is uh, the US uh, the leader of the West? Um, with under Trump, it's kind of almost comes under, is a, is a question mark is there. Uh, I, mean, I mean, even I can say that. And of course, the Kremlin people would just say that the West does not exist anymore. Anyway, so so it's kind of a, it's more complicated. And uh, but I think that um, also um, you would very often have um, history working like silently, invisibly working for Russia's uh benefit uh, to, to, to Moscow's advantage in the sense that uh, we tend to think that Moscow is still uh, uh, running uh, uh, I don't know, half of the world, one third of the world, whatever. Uh, uh, and it works both um, you know, as foreign policy kind of myth and, and even domestically in Russia because people in, uh, domestically in Russia fear the state and they, they kind of they have this residual uh, memory of uh, of uh, repression and that's why uh, Russia's history kind of ha has this potential of of uh, creating expectations whereas in uh, real life it's all uh, a lot less um, you know directed and a lot less uh, of a systemic uh, so I don't think it's a cold war it's something else but I don't know the what it is I think Michael McFall would be very upset that we're not calling it a hot piece. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, I think it, the part of the difficulty here is when you talk about Russian media coverage of the United States, for instance, you're really talking about TV mostly. The Russian independent media, maybe with the exception of RTVI, doesn't have correspondence in the United States as far as I know. Um, and they don't really, they, they, they maybe will cover major stories out of the United States, but it's, it's not the same as the way the New York Times or the Washington Post or Bloomberg or whatever have, you know, new, small newsrooms in Moscow. Um, I know Russian journalists exist in the United States, but it's, the independent media doesn't generally have personnel there. And so you're not getting the best of what they've got on our side of things. And so that's detrimental to what what kind of coverage they can get. And if you only look at their TV, 
the same goes for what if you same goes for looking at American TV. It's usually pretty bad. It's you know it's it's uh, alarmist and it's there to keep you tuned in, um, and so you're not going to get all that much measured analysis. I don't think in, in for for different reasons. I suppose in the United States, you know, maybe it's like that's what keeps the advertisements pouring in, and in Russia, that's what the that's what the latest agenda says you're supposed to say. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Are we closer to nuclear war? I don't know. We're, I don't know what the the atomic clock is at right now. I assume it's just ever closer. It's actually, <laughs> I think, seven minutes. I had to look it up recently. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's probably the speed it takes for the ICBMs to reach their targets, too. Um, so, yeah. That was Mark Galliotti, a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and author of many books, most recently The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia, published by Yale University Press, and We Need to Talk About Putin, published by Penguin. Also joining me was Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa English, and Maxim Trudelubov, a senior advisor at the Kennan Institute and editor-at-large at Vietnamisti. He's the author of The Tragedy of Property, Private Life, Ownership, and the Russian State, published by Polity. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or just recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Catch away. You can go to